Some folks uh, feel that their their job is supposed to do everything for them. Hey, I want it to, you know, kind of be my companion. It is supposed to inspire me. It is supposed to support me. It is supposed to do all this stuff. And I'm like, y'all, it's a job. I mean, it, it, you're probably, I mean, that that's, that's why you have therapy. Therapy helps you uh, recognize what you like and what you don't like. And, you know, you can, you can augment your work with other meaningful things outside of work. Your work doesn't have to be all encompassing. So I think, the definition of what we get from work will change now. Um, luckily, you know, I do think there's some uh, some benefits. I think people are getting paid more, which is good. Um, but we're, we're going to have to change our understanding of work. Uh, and then as, honor, uh, as owners and entrepreneurs and heads of HR, we have to recognize that there are certain new things that we can offer to people to keep them in the workplace and keep them happy. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and at goodmorninghr.com. This week, we're continuing our look back at the pandemic's impact on the workplace. What, what did we learn? What's changed? Maybe what lessons we still need to learn? And what might the future hold? There's no doubt that the last two years have had an impact on workplace mental health. First, we had physical isolation for, you know, that came from remote work uh, that was initially only supposed to last a few weeks and then dragged out into months and then for some people years. And then after we finally got used to working remotely, employers began asking us to come back and return to the office, creating all kinds of new anxieties. And then there were other workers who, in order to do their jobs, they needed to be physically present in their workplace, facing the public often in healthcare, retail, grocery. Uh, and that created an ever-present sense of risk for those folks. And then the COVID, COVID variants came along and brought their own uncertainties. And let's not even get into the political and the social uncertainties and the, the, all the polarization in the country. It's no wonder that workplace mental health, which is in my HR career, often been kind of a back burner issue. Yeah, we'll just refer them to the EAP, but it's never been a priority for employers at the level it is right now. It's really come to the forefront. And so my guest today is my friend, Dr. Brian Dixon. Brian's a psychiatrist and an entrepreneur who owns Mindful, a direct care psychiatry practice here in Fort Worth. I'll add that he's a friend and one of the smartest people I know. Aww. But most of my friends are kind of dumbasses. But Brian's still, <laughs> he's still a real smart guy. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Brian. Thank you, Mike, for having me. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to answering and uh, talking about whatever you want to talk about. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, this is a, I get a free hour of therapy here. So yeah. So where were you two years ago or whenever when you realized that this COVID thing is really going to disrupt our, our lives, business and prof professional, but also our personal lives? 
Yeah, it wasn't until after. So uh, my sister-in-law had a birthday, February 29th, whenever that leap year was. And we were over in Dallas and having a great time. And it was just when uh, the there were sprinklings of, oh, this this COVID thing may be happening. And I got home and I was sick as a dog. And it was like the sickest I've ever been in my whole time. Oh, no. And so I'm pretty sure I had it then. Uh, but of course, there weren't any testing or uh, tests available to, to figure out if that was the case. But it hit me when we did the shutdown thing, when people were literally at home, when I started to hear that uh, uh, human beings being still uh, cleared the skies, there was no smog, the, the animals came out. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is a game changer. And I don't know what's going to happen after this point. So. Yeah, and and I think that's for a lot of us. We and we thought it was temporary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. And so here we are, two years later, and it's I'm putting a whole series of podcasts around it because <laughs> it ain't going away, and and that we're going to be living with the, the the fallout. So just to get it clear in my head, you're a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between my family doctor, my psychiatrist, who's an MD, a psychologist, or a counselor? And maybe my bartender. What's what? What is a psychiatrist? What do you do? <laughs> well, so mostly um, I get to talk to people. So, um, but I get to talk to people through a medical lens. So, your uh, family doctor, your psychiatrist, and your um, psychologist, your therapist—all three of those folks have to go through undergrad. So, they go to some four-year college and they get some type of four-year degree. Um, the difference is when uh, what happens after college. So uh, for psychiatrists, you have to do four or five years of on-the-job training in psychiatry. Uh, for your family doctor, they have to do three years, a minimum of three years of on-the-job training in family medicine. And then for your psychologist, they do um, three to six years of some type of um, degree, um, depending on if they're a PsyD or a PhD. And then your bartender theoretically could be any of those folks, because, I mean, you can bartend on the side and make a little extra extra cash while you're doing all that. But uh, but yeah, the, the main difference, um, uh, bartenders are wonderful um, and you should tip them well, especially in this in this uh, this pandemic. Uh, but they don't have a fiduciary responsibility for your mental health. So that's the main difference between your bartender or your barber and your um, your licensed medical professionals. Okay. And so, and you, because you're an MD. Correct. You can prescribe drugs too. That is correct. So that's what sets um, the um, uh, physicians apart from the psychologist. So the psychologist, depending on what state you're in, so because um, I know your listeners are worldwide. Yeah. So uh, some states actually let psychologists uh, prescribe medicines if they go and do a, some type of training course. Uh, in Texas, where we are, um, that is not allowed. And so you have to have a medical degree in order to prescribe medications. And then the other big difference between psychologists and psychiatrists uh, most most times is the breadth of um, clinical and therapeutic approaches. So like me as a psychiatrist, I know three to five really, um, uh, really strong modalities um, because that's how I was trained. But most psychologists, they know like 15 or 20 because they have more time in the in the uh, therapy field. So. Now, I know just from our relationship that you do spend a lot of time in one-on-one direct kind of therapy, or, you know, is that the right term? Um, but it's my understanding there are psychiatrists who 
basically primarily focused on medical inter- or, or, or pharmaceutical interventions. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think of it, and this is kind of where the entrepreneurial side comes in. Um, you can go to um, Walmart and get basically whatever you need, right? Uh, but if you really, really want really good cheese, you probably don't want to go to Walmart. You probably go to Central Market or Whole Foods or to the uh, farmer's market, that, that sort of thing. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with Walmart cheese. So please don't come and get me if uh, Walmart if you're listening. Uh, but it's that same idea. So for me, the way that I was trained, I really like talking to people. Um, and, uh, and I enjoy that process. Some doctors are very much, Hey, I want to really just highlight the medicines. And so a lot of times they'll use like scales or they'll use uh, an abbreviated form where people type in all their information real quickly. And then, you know, the doctor reviews the form and says, this is what's going on. Here's your medicine. Um, it's not wrong. It's just a different approach. And so I, I prefer the, the talkative approach. Okay. And like you mentioned, you're an entrepreneur, um, how has COVID changed your business and your medical practice? Oh, my gosh. So uh, in so many ways, I'm still trying to process it all. So uh, one big change was that I swore up and down. So, Mike, if you had known me three, four years ago, I would have sworn up and down that I would never, ever do psychiatry over the Internet, ever. You couldn't pay me. I was like, that's not real psychiatry. That's not real practice. And uh, sure shit, guess what happened? I got four. Yeah, here we are. And I still don't really like it, but I've been very, very impressed at how many people respond so well to it. Like, I I guess I was just putting all my fears and irritations on other folks because I have kids and adults all over Texas at this point who are like, nope, I'm great. This is awesome. It's convenient. Um, And so that was a that was a really big surprise uh, for me. You had that feeling that being in the room was necessary. Mm-hmm. I thought I was the bomb, Mike. I thought I was the bomb. And oh, now you are. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the same transition a lot of employers made too, though, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I never dreamed we would go remote. And when I called my IT guy up, I was on spring break and I said, hey, we, we that disaster recovery plan we put in place, uh, will that work? And he said, yeah. And we did it. I never dreamed. I mean, I was planning on we would use that if a tornado hit the building or something. I never dreamed that we'd go remote. And now we're two years in and we're still remote and my employees love it. And, you know, we've got all the security and all the things there. But it's still, you know, I still wake up some mornings and I'm kind of shocked by it. So I I, I think I, I think a lot of employers are dealing with that. So. You've got, you know, you've got frontline seats. So what um, what's going on with mental health uh, right now? What you know, what's what's the trend been over the last two years and how is it different? Yeah. So anytime you go through a trauma uh, of any sort, one of the first things that happens is that your body kind of goes into shock. Uh, And shock in in the immediate time is actually very helpful because it kind of separates. It's like you looking at something and it separates you from fully comprehending what's going on. I think one of the hiccups with this whole pandemic thing is like we, we we're in a prolonged, sustained shock. And so a lot of people, in a sense, aren't really still feeling everything, even though some of us have gotten sick. We've lost loved ones. We've lost jobs. We've quit jobs. We've moved. We've done all this stuff. But it feels like everybody is still in this weird suspended animation. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's been the hardest part uh, for me personally, for me professionally, is my goal is to ground people, like to help people find some some semblance of, quote unquote, normalcy. Uh, and it just literally is not there. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of having to make stuff up as we go along. 
uh, to try to keep people anchored to something. And, uh, and, and again, myself included, like there are times I'll wake up and I'm like, so what's, what is this? What are, what are we doing today? I don't, I don't know where I am. Right. Well, you use that a, a term that I, I think probably has is overused publicly in, in the public discourse uh, and probably has a specific meaning. Talk about what is trauma because yeah. to hear you said you use that term and I hear, I mean, Everybody has everything. Everything that goes wrong in somebody's life is now a trauma. So talk to me about what, and I know that sound like the old guy get off my yard, but um, <laughs> but what is trauma? What is it technically? What does that mean? Yeah. So Mike, let me give a disclaimer to you, to you and to all of your listeners. So there is a textbook definition of trauma. I just don't like it. And so the textbook's definition of trauma, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, so the DSM, which is our like Bible, our recipe book mm -hmm. of, of diagnoses, um, there has to be a defined event uh, of a certain quality and character. It has to, there's a time limit. And most times the person um, has to be uh, immediately involved in that, or you can have kind of secondary trauma if it's a, if it's a, like a violent death or sexual assault, that sort of thing. Um, to me, that's very, um, it's overly constrictive. And so I'm going to do a very liberal thing and say that my definition of trauma is anything that happens to you um, that happens outside of your control that fundamentally changes your understanding of the universe. Okay, so that's my definition. And so when I use my definition, it's a lot more broad. Um, and, uh, and it also encompasses stuff that you don't traditionally think about. So like, to me, divorce is one of the most traumatic things that happens to the people in the divorce and the kids related to the divorce. And people kind of go, oh, well, you know, they kind of gloss over it. Well, in this case, the pandemic to me is a traumatic uh, event because we it happened to us. We don't have any control over it. Um, for a long time, we didn't know how it was even transmitted. Like, is it through the air? Is it in the water? Is it on doorknobs? Oh my gosh! And then it would kill certain people, and then other folks it wouldn't do anything. So it um, it it fundamentally changed our understanding of the world because it used to be oh if it's flu you just get your shot and put on a mask and that was not always the case. And so and we're still living through that. And so that's why I would say. That this is all uh, lots of lots of us are going through pandemic related trauma. Okay, so yeah, and and certainly a lot of it is outside of our our own control. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, studying the Stoics, you expect you know you come to expect that, but a lot of people weren't really ready to. I think mm -hmm. with the idea that that they were going to have uh, significant things impacting their life that were outside of their control. Um, so how does that play out and how people, I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you have that realization and especially at some point in your adult life, uh, when things have been rocking along pretty good maybe. And, and now you realize, um, that I, I don't have that kind of control, uh, over my circumstances that I thought that, you know, that something as arbitrary as a microscopic virus could, you know, radically change the course of my life. Um, how do people react to that? Uh, and and what's how are you seeing it played out in people's lives? Yeah, lots of different ways. So um, I'll, I'll give you a super fast crash course in uh, some some psychology. And this is not universal, but there's a uh, there's a school of thought uh, about defense mechanisms. So a defense mechanism is something that you use in a moment of stress to um, um, 
manage the stress that you're in. And there's kind of two different fields. There's two different um, buckets of defense mechanisms. You have your mature defense mechanisms, which is a good thing. And then you have your immature defense mechanisms, which are bad. Why are you mentioning that to me? Yeah, (laughs) because it's so important because, yeah, so anger is an immature defense mechanism. Uh, The most common one, strangely enough, is denial. Oh, this thing won't kill you. Oh, it'll be fine. Oh, it's just the flu. Oh, it's mild. Oh, it's whatever. Right. Oh, and so, I didn't hear much of that over the last yeah. few years. <laughs> yep. And so those uh, those immature uh, defense mechanisms are, uh, are very prevalent. Now, most of those folks don't end up in my office. And if they do, uh, most of them have been very respectful respectful when I say, hey, just wear a mask just because, and, and they do so. Um, but the mature defense mechanisms are things like using humor, right? Or using um, uh, sublimation, which is where you take that uncomfortableness and you find a way to channel it into something more purposeful, either exercise or I think everybody was baking bread uh, for a really long time and pelotoning and all that stuff. Those are all very mature defense mechanisms and those are very helpful. And so, uh, but most people in my office are, you know, uh, they they were struggling with their own immature defense mechanisms about everything else before the pandemic. So the pandemic just added a layer. So yeah, so lots of anxiety, uh, some depression, but mostly just kind of this weird shock, this, this, this kind of suspended animation is what I see. It's like people are kind of waiting to see when do I get to start my life again? And so, I mean, certainly, I mean, you know, I've, had you know, I've watched my kids go through school and college and and, and their careers uh, over throughout this, and certainly I didn't have I didn't feel like I had the luxury of sitting around. You know, I own my business like you do. I had you know I had to hustle, I had to pivot, had to do. I hate that word pivot now, but had to do <laughs> had to do whatever had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, but you're saying there are a lot of folks who are still on hold, waiting for the other shoe to drop or what's next. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I would say a lot of those folks are people who are entrepreneurs and then the uh, front line folks. So your nurses, your doctors, your grocery folks, like if we truly gave entrepreneurs and those frontline folks a day off, I think they would fall apart and we wouldn't be able to pick them up and put them back together for weeks at it uh, on end. That's how exhausted most folks are. But you don't have a choice, right? So you have to, you have a, you run a company, you wake yourself up and you force yourself to keep moving. Same thing with me. Um, I know that I need to take a vacation. Um, I'm not burned out because I don't feel burned out, but I am tired. I am emotionally fatigued, but I can't stop because there's still shit to be done. So I have mm-hmm. to go do it. And so um, whether that's healthy or not, well, until somebody can pay my bills so that I don't have to be there pushing a the lever, uh, I'm going to keep showing up to work. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 36 and enter the keyword Dixon. That's D-I-X-O-N. On March 24th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Drug-Free Workplaces in an Increasingly Tolerant and Stoned Society. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit 
for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after March 24th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Brian Dixon. So you mentioned emotional fatigue and burnout. Uh, How do people who are experiencing those and they're in the workplace, how does that play out? What does that look like? If I'm, if, 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 you know, if I'm a, a supervisor, a manager, a leader in an organization, what does it look like if I see an employee with emotional fatigue, burnout, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. So um, lots of different ways, depending on that person's um, skill set and coping skills. Um, it can show up as just calling in. It could show up as decreased productivity, um, more fatigue and tiredness, social isolation, like, oh, no, I don't want to go out to, uh, to lunch with the group today. I just want to kind of be at my desk and be alone. Um, it can uh, show up as direct requests for emotional support animals at work, which is a new one to me mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd, I'd never really run across. Um, uh, um, or uh, extended uh, FMLA, you know, so mm-hmm. folks coming in and calling in and saying, hey, I need a mental health day, or I need to be gone for a while, or I need a different job. So it can show up in lots of different ways. Uh, keeping in mind that the workplace, in my opinion, so this is, you know, HR better than I do, Mike. And so this is just my, my two cents. Um, since wages weren't keeping up in, with, uh, with jobs and in our society, we show your value by what you get paid. Now, whether you feel that about yourself or not is uh, another discussion, but we show how valuable you are by the money that you make a lot of times. And so wages weren't catching up. And so I, I was not surprised when a whole bunch of people started quitting. The hard part is now we're in this weird middle world where nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, and so I don't know what the next phase of work is going to be. I don't know what the next phase of mental health at work is going to be because everybody is so kind of scattered all over the place. But but you think the mental health issues that employees are feeling are effect, are, are part of what's driving the, the great resignation or the, all the turnover that we that we're seeing? Yeah, for lots well, of different reasons. See, yeah. I was always told you don't ever make a major life decision when you're in crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but you're saying a lot of people are doing that right now. I think so. So somebody called it the great renegotiation. Uh-huh. So where people are coming and saying, hey, let's renegotiate how much I'm getting paid and what the perks are of work. Um, I like that idea better than the great resignation. Um, however, comma, I will say um, businesses um, can do better to build their culture. Um, and to be more supportive in their culture. And so, uh, uh, but also because of, uh, of social media, I think that people get a very skewed view of what work is supposed to be. It, let, uh, let me see if I can clarify that. Some folks uh, feel that their, their job is supposed to do everything for them. Hey, I want it to, you know, kind of be my companion. It is supposed to inspire me. It is supposed to support me. It is supposed to do all this stuff. And I'm like, y'all, it's a job. I mean, it, it, you're probably, I mean, that that's that's why you have therapy. Therapy helps you uh, recognize what you like and what you don't like. And, you know, you can you can augment your work with other meaningful things outside of work. Your work doesn't have to be all encompassing. So I think the definition of what we get from work will change now. Um, luckily, you know, I do think there are some 
some benefits. I think people are getting paid more, which is good. Um, but we're, we're going to have to change our understanding of work. Uh, and then as honor, uh, as owners and entrepreneurs and heads of HR, we have to recognize that there are certain new things that we can offer to people to keep them in the workplace and keep them happy. That's interesting. Um, but I'm really curious what you're thinking around that, that idea that, um, that we put too much pressure on what our job can deliver to us as far as personal satisfaction. Uh, I, I think that we've romanticized over probably the last 20 or 30 years what we, you know, this expectation of what, uh, what we, what, what work has to mean to us. And, um, so, uh, I'm glad to hear somebody else say it because it's, 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 you know, it's not always, a you know, a popular thing to say, yeah, well, not all work is going to be meaningful. Maybe the meaning of the work, maybe why you're doing it, the purpose that you make, the reason you get up in the morning and do it is purposeful to you. I, you know, this, this is what I do. It's honorable. And it brings food to the, you know, to, to the table for my kids. But, you know, putting tab A and slide A all day long may not be the thing that, that, you know, that in and of itself, it brings purpose to somebody's lives. And so, but there seems to be this real push. And I think um, the youngest in our workforce right now are, uh, are, are trying to figure that out because I think they've been sold a bill of goods up to a certain point that, you know, everything has to be laden with this real deep meaning. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, I, I would I would add just to jump in real quick uh, yeah, because I'm 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 all about you're the one with uh, the, the the MD. I, I just, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just a guy with a microphone. <laughs> well, when I say um, I'm all about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm all about social justice. I'm I'm all for that stuff, right? Um, and so let me be super super clear when I when I say this next thing, um, which is there is nothing wrong with a company doing what the company is supposed to do. Um, and so I, I look to Starbucks. So I don't, I don't generally drink a whole lot of Starbucks just because I don't like sitting in lines and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I make my coffee at home. Um, but when there was that really big push uh, for like, you know, have an afternoon off and do all this other stuff. And I'm like, in my opinion, it, it's super helpful if a job doesn't hurt people. Right. So make sure that in the workplace, everybody feels valued, everybody that everything is fair and transparent, uh, make sure it's a safe workplace. But then past the point of what they're doing, and in this case is making coffee for extraordinary um, uh, uh, amounts of money. I don't know that you need to do anything else, because to me, that social justice work should be done in neighborhoods and neighborhood associations and with your um, um, with your family and that sort of thing. And so. I think sometimes we we overlap areas that shouldn't necessarily be overlapped. Now, um, there's lots of folks who will take our, our argument with that and they're going to take my words out of context and say, no, it should be everywhere. And I, that's what I'm saying. Everybody should be treated fairly and equally. And um, but but when it comes to work, we have to remember why we're there. So if it's, yeah, put tab A into slot B, then do that. If it's teaching kids, it's do that. If it's uh, background checks, it's do that, right? And then and do it transfer, transparently and fairly um, and make sure people are uh, feeling supported at work. It's just, it, it feels, yeah. So I think we're overlapping things so much now and it's, it's creating an issue. Interesting. 
So, but if I'm a leader in the organization and I see somebody struggling, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, you mentioned absenteeism, calling mm-hmm. in, productivity issues, performance issues, or even somebody who just says, this job isn't doing it for me, I'm feeling burned out, or what, how, how can I respond? What's, what's, you know, and, and don't worry about Americans with Disability Act or any of that stuff. I, uh, I'll, I'll cover that in another episode, but just from a, a, a tactical point of view as an employer, what, what do, what, how can I respond that doesn't cause more issues, but doesn't also put me in the role of the therapist or whatever for that employee? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of validation and then structure. So people underestimate the power of structure, which I'll talk about in just a second. But validation being the first thing. So everybody's going through something. Even before the pandemic, people were going through something. And having the boss person say, hey, I know you're going through a lot. Is there how can I be helpful or just be a listening ear? I think is really powerful. That's what that's what therapists always start with. So when you sit in the therapist office and you're telling your story, the therapist most time is going to be validating your experience. And you can do that without having a license uh, or being a um, psychiatrist or a psychologist. So just validation uh, and then structure. So when I say structure, a lot of people, um, I, I don't mean micromanaging. I mean, being very clear about here's what I need from you uh, in this moment or in this time um, and uncertainty is very stressful. And so, which is why the pandemic has been so stressful for us, because we're kind of just like, what do we do? Everybody's just running around like a chicken with their head cut off, right? So um, you being in the the um, owner role and saying, okay, for the next quarter, I need you just to do this. I don't need you to go save the world and do all this other stuff. I need you to get this many things done in this amount of time. You know what you're doing. I believe in you. Let's go. And I think that is incredibly powerful um, in a time in a time like this. So over the last two years, what do you think employers have done in their responses to COVID and everything that's been positive for mental uh, welfare? Yeah. Money, 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 money. Yeah. So I'm super stoked that people started paying people more. Um, I I don't, uh, I've heard this a lot uh, uh, from certain people like, hey, well, people just don't want to work. And I'm like, no, people actually get a lot of purpose and meaning out of their work. Um, You just have to pay them. And so I'm, I'm actually glad that quite a few folks have gone up on their on their pay rate. Um, so I think that was a very positive thing. Um, I also like, even though you hate the pivot, I love the pivot. I think it's great. I think uh, the idea of fractionalization of services and fractionalization of work, I think is awesome because a lot of folks, uh, especially the younger crowd, um, we, we're not going to have them in the workforce at the same job for 30 years. That ain't going to happen. And so allowing them some wiggle room to go and do other things, to have a flexible work schedule, work from home, um, all of those new productivity tools that, you know, where you can track time and they can um, report from uh, remotely. I think all of that stuff is a great idea. So uh, some there are quite a few silver linings out of this horrible situation. What have you seen employers do? particularly poorly over yeah. the last two years. So um, I, so I, Mike, I'm just, I'm still floored that almost that uh, fast food places are still open. Cause I just, to me, I just wish half of them would have went out of uh, business. Cause they're just, Oh my gosh, they're still paying subpar wages and it's just awful. But um, what else did they do poorly? Um, 
Yeah, if they didn't pivot. So you had to change your business model. Um, I, I don't think you could get through the pandemic without doing that. And some folks were still hanging on for dear life. Uh, very much like the, um, you know, some bars were like, hey, we're going to do to go alcoholic beverages. Uh, and then some other bars were like, no, we're going to stick to our traditional thing. And well, they're no longer with us. So I think um, not pivoting was probably a really bad idea. Um, again, I still don't know how Arby's is open, but that's just me. That's, well, but, but the reality, I mean, you know, this is going to take us off topic, but this is like when we have breakfast, Brian, we're about to get in, roll my sleeves up. Okay. <laughs> but there, but there are, if those jobs did not exist, mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of low skill workers who I agree is a big social problem and we need to figure out how to, you know, but we've, uh, we're at an impasse so far at that, uh, figuring, you know, how to, how to, create skills uh, so people have maybe more meaningful and, and more valuable as financially valuable work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you were to shut down all of those, uh, uh, you know, low wage type jobs, mm-hmm. you'd put a lot of people at an even greater disadvantage. Yeah. So uh, I'm not an economist. I just play one on TV. Um, I would push back and say that um, um, in the service industry, as I understand it, when I see people, whether or not they're making $4.25 plus tips or not, if they really love the place that they work, they do it anyway, right? So some, a lot of the local mom and pop restaurants and stuff, um, they, they, they don't, they make below minimum wage, but they would make it up in tips and they still stuck around even after the pandemic. To me, it's the, it's the corporate bloat. It's those fast food restaurants that have been around forever who have always paid low. Um, but they also, their, their culture is bad. They treat their people really badly or they, um, are, the turnover is really high and they don't really care about um, making sure that they're building a sustainable workforce. Those folks, I say, absolutely, they should have gone out of business. This is, um, they're too big to fail and it really just uh, kind of irritates me and makes me mad that they are getting lumped in with all the mom and pop stuff. And so I would say low wage is relative. Um, because for people who really love what they do in that service industry, especially, um, yeah, they they kept going to work. They still like their jobs. And that's why I'm happy for them that they're getting paid more. And then the rest of those corporate jokers, I say, yeah, they 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 should go under. But again, that's another topic for another day. Everybody get your pitchforks out. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you Brian's uh, office address at the end of this. I love it. Well, okay, so if I am an employer... Mm-hmm. And I want to be more responsive to my employees' mental health needs. What are some What are some practical things I can do uh, to to make sure that I'm being as compassionate uh, and responsive to my employees' needs as possible? Yeah, one of the best things to do is if you have a black woman or a Latina woman working at your company, talk to them first. OK, because okay. uh, yeah, okay, and, here we go. Yeah. So the reason I say that the reason I say that is because even before the pandemic, they were um, paid less because of their gender. They were paid less because of their um, uh, uh, because of their ethnicity. And so if they found a way to still stay at your job, there's something about that job that they probably love. OK, so uh, you should pat yourself on the back for that part. And then um, ask them what they need because they are the bellwether. Uh, they're the canaries in the coal mine, um, and they're your 
some of your most resilient people as well. So if they're like, hey, can we really need to consider doing X, Y, and Z? It's probably worth listening to. Now, that's not to say you can't go and talk to your white dudes in your company because I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them and <clears throat> you should totally feel fine talking to them too. I have but, precious uh, few of them, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'd say make a, make a concerted effort to... Uh, to talk to those particular um, people in your company. And then the last part would be, uh, again, and I don't fully understand how to check um, uh, salaries and stuff. Like, I don't know if there's a, a workforce database. I just, just be fair. And so like in my company, I literally, every time I hire somebody, I go, okay, regardless of what they look like, does the pay suit the job uh, from what I can understand? So I'll go and look on different websites and go, okay, I think this is how much I'm supposed to be paying folks. And then I'll go to that person and say, okay, I'm going to offer you this job. Here's your KPI. So again, give them structure. This is what I'm going to expect for you from you for this, this amount of money. I'm going to hold you to it. And then if you can make me more money, then I can give you more money, right? So, um, which is a, I think a profound thing for business owners to do is, uh, rather than make hollow promises or have disappointed people when they first start that job, be very transparent of this is what I can give you. And if you want more, you have to do more. Okay. So being transparent about why we pay what we pay for a role so that people understand that. And that's, and that's been a big HR conversation for a number of years. And, and now you're seeing states even pass laws that say you've got to, when you post a job, uh, you have to uh, post also what the, the pay range is. For that role, so that any idea being that candidates uh, would have, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't be so easily, I guess, uh, taken advantage of if, if you know, by asking, you know, accepting a lower wage than than maybe where they should be in a pay band. But what you said in, uh, before about uh, talking to your uh, more traditionally disadvantaged populations about what what what, what engages them about the work, why they're still there, uh, which I think is always a good question to ask any of your employees, why do you get up every morning and come to work? What is it about this place that makes you not want to kill yourself? Uh, I think that's all, that's really interesting. But but targeting the, those populations, talk to me more about uh, how that'll, that'll, you know, how that, you said they were canaries in a coal mine. Tell, talk about that a little bit more because that's really intriguing. Yeah, so... When I said that, so before the pandemic, um, these folks, uh, according to research, just, they just make less money. Uh, I want to say for um, Latina females, to, for every dollar that a white male makes, uh, Latina females make, I want to say, 68 cents or 63 cents. And so if they're coming to work, and I'm not saying, and let me be clear, I'm not saying that you as an individual employer are paying your Latino female employees less. It's just, I'm talking an average. Um, and uh, and that those averages are kind of cumulative. So they've worked at other jobs where they were probably underpaid. And so if they're there with you for any measure of time, there's probably something redeeming about that workplace. I don't know if it's convenient. I don't know if it's um, what they're getting paid. And so it's just worth looking into. Well, that was before the pandemic. Now take that same population, stress them out even more because... Uh, the pandemic uh, uh, showed us that the inequities, the health inequities are severe. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time where 
um, uh, certain people were getting shots before other people. Um, tests were unavailable for certain folks. So like if you didn't have uh, a the internet to order tests from the government, you couldn't get them, right? So there's all of these inequities uh, in how we rolled out shots and how we talked about things. And those particular populations got hit harder than uh, white guys and white females. And so if they're still there at this date in 2022, uh, they're worth talk- talking to. Um, and, and you don't lose anything by recognizing their humanity. You don't lose anything by validating them for what they've probably gone through. Um, I think it's only, this is a great opportunity to be very, very uh, inclusive going forward um, with that, especially with that particular population. Interesting. Okay. So um, so we should talk to our employees uh, about what it is they need to be successful why they continue to come to work and do, you know, basically double down on the things that are really attractive and, and are being, you know, helping people uh, and, and then talk to them about, you know, what, what, what would be, uh, would make it a place that they want to work more. Mm-hmm. Um, what else around mental health ought an employer consider if I really want to have a, uh, a resilient workforce? Yeah. So uh, never forget the power of physical stuff. So there was some research that showed that sitting is the new smoking um, and that quite a few of us literally sit all day long. Uh, we sit in meetings. Um, uh, we sit uh, as we do appointments. And uh, and that's bad uh, And uh, because you need to get up and get your cardiovascular system um, uh, active and moving around. And so I'm super hopeful that the new workplace, be it hybrid or in person, is more inclusive of physical stuff so that um, we're not putting ourselves at risk just sitting around and, um, and having that sedentary workplace lifestyle. Um, and then I think it's always helpful to have benefits. Now, I don't believe in health insurance. I think it's a scam um, there. It's it's horrible and uh, should be illegal. Um, and so I think making sure to provide. Yeah, uh-huh, it's, it should be illegal. Uh, yeah, it's horrible. Here's, OK, there's another set of pitchforks. <laughs> coming your way. Um, but uh, making sure that other benefits are available. So I wish that everybody could have a health savings account that they could take with them wherever they go, um, that it is direct pre-tax money that they can use for uh, massage therapy, for physical therapy, for psychiatry, for whatever they need. Um, and so if you can't do that, because I know you're the HR guy, so I know there's all these wacky rules about HSAs and FSAs mm-hmm. and all this other nonsense. Um, uh, if you can't do that, I mean, bonusing people is super helpful. Um, and then um, I, I would say making sure that they have the things that they need. So you as an employer, you tend to have connections uh, for stuff uh, to get stuff at better rates or get access to things at, uh, at a better um, uh, price point. And if those things you can pass along. So, for example, I have eight employees, I think, in my companies now, and they're really wonderful. Um, and I just happen to know lots of folks who do other things, T-shirts, tea company, blah, blah, blah. And if one of my employees says, hey, I really like tea, uh, tea and T-shirts, I go, I know just the person to talk to, right? So using those connections to make their lives easier. And it's the small things. Like people don't need a whole lot. Yeah, I'm sure everybody would like a million dollars. But um employees really like it when you show that you care, you remember their name, you send them a happy birthday, you give them the small things, you encourage them to take their PTO, you, um, you know, hey, go and vote on voting day, make sure that, you know, um, you are using up all of the time that I have given you, right? So people, people tend to appreciate those things. 
So push PTO for sure. And you take the time off, uh, push your vacation, those kind of things. Um, to the extent that you've got the resources, uh, make those additional uh, kinds of things, you know, appreciations. And um, there's a whole cottage industry around rewards and recognition. Uh, and sometimes I feel like they oversell the value of that, uh, uh, or at least if you're just delivering tchotchkes to people. I mean, it's not it's not something that's, uh, you know, I mean, we all, we only there's only so much space on the shelf for a employee of the month glass, little obelisk or whatever. Right. Mm, uh, but, right. Uh, but things that are actually meaningful to those employees is what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I think of it also as time. So for you to be able to say, take five minutes and just talk to somebody, sometimes that's really helpful. Hey, you're not in trouble. I just wanted to say, thank you for being here. And I really appreciate it. And coming from the boss, the boss, the boss is super, super profound. So especially, and I don't know how many people you have, but I found it to be incredibly helpful in our, in, in, in my companies. Interesting. So um, then what would you, what, what skills does a frontline manager really need to have then in order to I guess, assess or be aware of uh, what the mental health situation is in, in, in their small little you know corner of the world uh, and, and to facilitate that. I think the first thing is, um, uh, and this is training as a physician. So we all, if you ever talk to any doctor, they always think worst, worst case scenario first. So that's how, that's kind of how our training goes. And so when I say this, I say that with that, that idea in mind. So um, every frontline manager should know worst case scenario. So if someone comes up to you and they say, I want to kill myself or I want to kill somebody else or I'm having bad thoughts or I'm hearing things or seeing things, the absolute first thing is to say, I hear you. I want to help you. Okay. So those are the first things. I, I hear you. I want to help you. And then the next thing is they should have some type of way to be able to refer um, those folks in that moment. Um, and so hopefully your company has a you know, disaster plan or whatever you, you call it, but there's some kind of conduit for that frontline manager to then get that person in crisis help. And most times it's 911. Literally, you just pick up the phone and call 911. Uh, but there should be some internal process. Now, that is not very common, even though, yes, we know that the rate of uh, suicide is increasing. We know the rate of mental health concerns is going up, but is not that common in the grand scheme of things. Far more common is just people saying, I'm tired, I need help. And that's where that validation comes in. Hey, I hear you. I see you. Um, I'm, I may not be able to fix it, but I can log this issue. I can report it up the chain uh, because ultimately um, uh, they don't have decision-making uh, power anyway, right? But having some mechanism to catch those concerns and get them to where they need to be, I think is really important. Okay, great. And well, Brian, I pr it's been a great conversation and uh, it'll... Uh may go down in history as the, the one that, that, that blew everything up for my coffee, but we'll see. <laughs> but thank you. That's all the time we do have today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It was great. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. 
I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, keep your chin up.